Welcome to our seventh out of our 10-part series on the book of Revelation. If you recall, we broke the book of Revelation up just to make it easier for us to understand it. Because remember, our goal in this series is to make the book understandable. Not every single detail, but the great themes of the book so that we're not afraid to dive in. And secondly, make it practically applicable. Christians have read the book of Revelation for 2,000 years and found great comfort in the profound truths therein. We want to do the same thing. The first three chapters of the book of Revelation are basically the letter to the seven churches, Jesus speaking to seven churches. Chapters four through 19 are called the tribulation. It's a series of three sets of seven judgments, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls of wrath. Chapter 20 is a judgment and millennium, 21 and 22, new heaven and new earth. Every week we have been talking about the four basic views of the tribulation. Now I'm speaking of chapters four through 19, and I know you're probably getting tired of my reminding you of this, but I think it's very helpful to understand how Christians have looked at this differently and why. They're basically answering the question, when did these things happen? Preterist view says they happened in the past. Historicist view says chapter four through 19 is sort of a coded roadmap for all of history from the first coming of Christ to the second. Futurists say all of these things are going to happen in the future in a seven year time period. And symbolic point of view says these events are timeless truths. They've actually happened many times and will happen many times again. So we'll look at the various points of view as we move through this. In our last lesson, we saw in chapters 13 and 14 the arrival of Satan, the great dragon, bringing a beast out of the sea, a political ruler or entity, the Antichrist, and a beast from the land, a false prophet, if you will, a religious leader or entity. And so this unholy trinity is about to unleash havoc on the earth in their rebellion against God. We question who is the Antichrist? Well, depending on your view of this section, people have had different ideas. Certain individuals who are opposed to Christ, certain institutions perhaps, or the symbolic view that there are many Antichrist forces throughout history, and perhaps there will be a specific culminating Antichrist in the future. So speculation about the Antichrist is rife, but what we all agreed on were the tenets behind what's happening. The Antichrist will use the coercive power of the state and the persuasive, deceptive power of the false prophet to try to convert or pervert the people of God. Well, in the lesson today, we have had seven seals and seven trumpets, and you've seen the judgment of God on the earth, and depending on your point of view is what's happened. If you're a historicist, we're moving through history. If you're a futurist, we're in the middle of a nuclear war with Russia, their Arab allies, the Chinese attacking Israel, perhaps the United States has gotten involved. And in this seven year period, we're a little more than halfway through it. And we're in the second three and a half years called the Great Tribulation. So depending on your view where we are, we are about to unleash the seven bowls of wrath. But before we do that, I wanna take just a little detour and go back to a theme that has run through this entire book, and that's the theme of 
persecution. We talked about when John wrote Revelation, and I'm gonna suggest to you for our purposes, let's call that about 95 AD, the end of the first century. Christians were being persecuted then and would continue to be persecuted for the next 200 years. They were persecuted physically, of course. Many Christians were killed for being Christians. We saw a letter from Pliny the Younger to the Emperor Hadrian saying, if Christians won't convert, I've been executing them. But we saw in the letters to the seven churches in chapters one through three that persecution also took the form of economic oppression. In other words, Christians couldn't get jobs. They were considered not very good citizens. If you won't worship the gods of Rome, then you're kind of an outcast. And so persecution in its various forms. I wanna touch that again because I don't want us to lose sight of the environment into which the book of Revelation was written And as we go through the tribulation, regardless of your view, the position in which we believers are gonna be in a hostile world, depending on whether that's through history or if you're a futurist, if that's coming in a specific time in the future. I don't want us to forget this idea of persecution. So I wanna take you back to a gentleman named Tacitus. Tacitus was a Roman historian and a Roman senator He lived, I believe he was born in 56 AD, died in 120 AD. So literally, John's writing the book of Revelation about the midpoint of his life. So Tacitus was a historian, and in his history of Rome, he has a very short piece that talks about Jesus and talks about the church. And here's the context, because I wanna show you some excerpts from that because I want you to get a feel for what the persecution was like. Well, the time is early before the book of Revelation is written, in 64 AD. 64 AD, Nero is emperor of Rome. If Paul is not imprisoned in Rome then, he very soon will be, and Nero will have him executed. If the apostle Peter is not already imprisoned in Rome, he soon will be, and Nero, according to church uh, tradition, will have him executed as well. But Nero, in 64 AD, was thought to have started a great six-day fire in Rome to literally burn the slums out, burned most of the city down, and allowed him to do a little, shall we say, urban renewal, right? Well, he obviously didn't want to take blame for all these people being killed and all this destruction, and so he began to accuse the Christians as a scapegoat. Well, that didn't convince Tacitus or most of Roman society, and yet he played this out. So let me give you a couple of excerpts from Tacitus' Annals of Rome. Here he says this, "'Neither human resources nor imperial munificence "'nor appeasement of the gods "'eliminated sinister suspicions "'that the fire had been instigated.'" In other words, what he's saying is, no matter what Nero did, you know, saying, oh, the gods were punishing us, let's make sacrifices, or, oh my goodness, let me make up for this, Uh, here's free bread and here's free food. In other words, no matter what Nero did, Tacitus said, he really couldn't shake the suspicion that maybe you started this fire. We know you have some zoning things you'd like to do, and maybe this is how you did it. Well, obviously, even if you're emperor of Rome, it's not a good thing to have all the populace against you. So that's what Tacitus is saying. He really couldn't shake it. To suppress this rumor, 
Nero fabricated scapegoats and punished with every refinement the notoriously depraved Christians, as they were popularly called. Their originator, Christ, had been executed in Tiberius' reign. Tiberius was the uh, emperor by the governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. So let me stop there, I have a little bit more, but isn't that interesting corroboration for the historical facts of the Gospels? Not doesn't corroborate everything, but it does set it into its historical time frame. And again, let me take a little detour and say this, Christianity is historically rooted. In other words, it makes claims about the nature of reality, but it makes them from inside real history. This is not King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table that may or may not have had a factual basis, but they're more mythological. Christianity is not mythological partly because it's set into historical context that in many ways is verifiable from extra-biblical sources like this. So we know that Tacitus thought there was a Christ and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate in the reign of the emperor Tiberius, exactly what the Bible teaches as well. Let's go on. So Nero began to make the Christians scapegoats. First, Nero had self-acknowledged Christians arrested. By the way, that's the interesting thing is if you Confess. They asked you, are you a Christian? If you said no, you might be okay. If you said yes, then you were arrested simply for saying yes. He had them arrested, and their deaths were made farcical. Dressed in wild animal skins, they were torn to pieces by dogs, or crucified, or made into torches to be ignited after dark as substitutes for daylight would take these people and tie them on a pole or tie them on a cross, coat them with pitch and set them on fire at night to literally be human torches in Rome. This is the kind of cruelty that was poured out on Christians. And I want us to get a feel for what's happening in the, the context of the scriptures. Despite their guilt as Christians and the ruthless punishment it deserved, the victims were pitied why? Because it was felt they were being sacrificed to one man's brutality rather than to the national interest. That is a very interesting thing to say. It's very timely, unfortunately. I realize this is not going on in most of our world today, although things this brutal are happening to Christians in, unfortunately, some parts of our world. But listen to what he's saying. First of all, he's saying that, by the way, even the Roman citizens, who, by the way, hated the Christians, still thought Nero, they didn't like the fact that they thought Nero was doing this to cover up something. But notice, they didn't really have a problem with the Christians being punished. In fact, Tacitus says, and the ruthless punishment that it deserved. So being a Christian, he's representing the popular thinking in the Roman Empire in 64, is that being a Christian deserved ruthless punishment. They didn't like this because they just thought Nero was being fake about it, and they didn't like Nero. But they really didn't have a problem with punishing Christians. Why is that? Let me take a, a pause for a moment if I can, because this persecution that you're seeing in Rome was actually worse in the province of Asia. If you remember, the province of Asia is what we now call Turkey. And the letters to the seven churches in Revelation 1 through 3 were written to churches in the Roman province of Asia. Well, the Roman province of Asia were 
even more enthusiastic emperor worshipers, the cult of the emperor and the oppression of Christians and the arresting and killing them was actually worse in the province of Asia. And so as you read those letters, you read how Jesus is talking to them about the intense persecution. But the reason that they were thought to deserve punishment is twofold. By this time, there were a lot of rumors that went around. For example, the fact that Christians took communion and that we said, Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body which is given for you, and drink, this is my blood, a new covenant in my blood. Now, Christians, at least at that time, understood that when they took the bread and the cup, they were remembering Jesus' sacrifice, but the rumor came about that Christians actually practiced cannibalism. And in fact, the rumor got even worse that they ate babies. I mean, just horrible rumors about the Christians. So that was one reason were these rumors that these people might look nice and they might act nice, but in secret, they're really demons. The second reason is they weren't good citizens. In other words, they would not sacrifice to the Roman gods. Like, feel free to keep all the gods you want, but you have to acknowledge the Roman gods. And in fact, you really have to acknowledge Caesar. And so during this time, and in fact for the next couple of hundred years, Christians were thought of as not good citizens. Now I know that sounds crazy to you and me, because you think, well, Christians, we serve the community, we show the love of Christ, we show compassion, we are communities of faith, we don't take up arms and go you know, oppress people that don't agree with us. In other words, we exemplify the love and the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. But by not worshiping the gods of the culture, they were considered evil. I'm going to suggest to you the same thing is happening in our culture today, is the fact that Christians won't bow to the gods of the culture. Sometimes we call it won't be politically correct. Maybe that's a little milder form, but we realize that some of the values our culture holds, Christians are seen as haters, people who hate other people. And you think, wait a minute, that's that's not true about Christians at all. It wasn't true in 64 AD either, and yet it happened. So I simply want to point out to you that the environment in which Revelation is written is not that different from our world today. So some interesting historical verification of what's going on in the book of Revelation. Well, let me turn now to the text. We're going to do chapters 15 and 16, and as I mentioned, this is where you see the seven bowls of wrath, the third of three sets of seven judgments. Let's see what the text says. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and over the number of his name. These are people during this tribulation, again, whether you think it's all through history or you think it's just seven years, these are believers. They didn't live through the tribulation. They kept their faith. And so here they are in heaven rejoicing with God. They have overcome the beast. How did they overcome? Not by escaping with their lives. They overcame the way we all overcome is by being faithful in the face of difficulties. So they have overcome the beast and the number of his name. They held harps given them by God and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. I wanna talk about the song of Moses in just a moment because there's a theme that runs through this. 
But first, I want to address one thing, and that is you see the wrath of God being poured out. This is the justice of God being done. This is judgment coming upon the earth. And I know that sometimes we think, particularly in popular evangelical circles, sometimes we get the impression the book of Revelation is just an angry God. And boy, the Gospels, Jesus is just such a nice guy. What's up with this dichotomy? Well, any reasonably careful reading of the Gospels will realize Jesus talked about judgment in his parables about as often as he talked about anything, and that the good news of the Gospel is indeed paired with judgment. Now, I'm going to suggest to you that that's several reasons, but one is you can't have a just God without judgment. But I want you to see the connection between Revelation and the gospel itself. Look at this one passage from the book of Romans. This is Paul explaining the gospel to the Christians in Rome. But look at this. He said, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. This is the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the good news is simply this. We all stand condemned under the justice, the wrath, the judgment of God. Without that, there is no gospel. If we take the Jesus loves you away from the I stand under the judgment and justice and judgment of God, we don't have a gospel. And so Jesus talks about coming to save the world and returning to judge the world. Those two things together are what make God who he is, they make Jesus who he is. And so the wrath of God is being poured out. Let's go on. After this, I looked, and in heaven, the temple, that is the tabernacle of the testimony, so it's a temple, God's temple in heaven, was opened, and out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen. Remember what we said about clean clothes? Represented righteousness that is given to us by God. So they were dressed in these uh, shining linen, wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures who were around the throne of God gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So what is this wrath of God? First of all, I want you to notice the exodus motif that runs through this. When I say the exodus motif, what I mean is the story of the book of Exodus the historical events surrounding the Israelites coming out of Egypt and being led to the promised land. The story of the book of Exodus was something that the Israelites did as a dress rehearsal, if you will. In other words, it was real. It was God saving and redeeming them, but it was in a sense a dress rehearsal for what God will do through all of humanity. Here's the story of the Exodus in short. God's people are oppressed. God hears their cries. He sends a deliverer to them. His deliverer, Moses in that case, confronts the gods of the culture, Pharaoh, the most powerful man at the time, and says, God said he is taking his people out of bondage and taking them to the promised land. The gods of the culture say, no, I do not know your God. This is what Pharaoh said, I do not know your God and I will not let these people go. And so what happens? Moses unleashes plagues, judgments, 
darkness, water turning to blood, hailstones, all kinds of things we have seen in the book of Revelation happening. So he unleashes these judgments and the plagues are chosen to show the Egyptians that the gods you think that are gonna protect you, like the God of the Nile, doesn't seem to have been able to keep the Nile from turning to blood. Oh, and the God of all the livestock doesn't seem to have been able to keep them from dying. In other words, God is judging the gods of the culture and pointing out they're no gods at all. And so Moses takes the people, they are pursued by Pharaoh, pursued by the enemy, and the Red Sea parts and they move through the water. It closes behind them and then they began to sing a song of praise. The song of Moses is sung saying, oh Lord, who could believe that you have saved us? Here in heaven, you see those who've come through the tribulation singing the song of Moses by the sea that looked like fire. I want you to see that the Exodus story is basically a template, if you will. It's God's way of explaining, this is how you're gonna understand what I have done. God is not just mad and deciding to cause havoc in the world. God is redeeming us. God is taking those who are faithful and the Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet will do anything to hold on to them, to rebel. And God's plagues, his judgments, coming down on these false gods, if you will, and he does indeed lead us to the promised land. The story of our redemption was played out long ago to teach us, and it's called the Exodus story or the Exodus motif. And I just want you to look, you'll see many of the points of that in here. So what's happening here? Historicist point of view, remember, Antichrist is the Pope, the papacy. They see these plagues being poured out on the Roman Catholic Church. That's a historicist view. Futurist view, futurists see this as the end of the tribulation. We're getting near the end of the three and a half years and God's final judgment on these powers of the world that are lined up against Israel and his people. The symbolic view, of course, is that this is recapitulating what happened. It's retelling the story that was told with the seals and was told with the trumpets. And it's that same Exodus story, the same story of God's wrath and judgment on evil and his redemption and salvation of those who are faithful. So let's go on, see what happens when the bowls are poured out. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went, poured out his bowl on the land and ugly and painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast on their hand or their forehead and worshiped the image of the beast. That was in our last lesson. So those who have given their allegiance to the beast break out in these painful sores. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned to blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. If you remember, with the seven seals, a fourth of things died. And with the seven trumpets, a third of things died. And it just gets worse and worse as you tell the story. And now everything dies in the sea. Third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So what does the historicist think is going on here? They think it's very symbolic. They think that the sores that break out, remember, this is judgment on the papacy. Well, the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages is being, quote, judged. They think the sores 
that are breaking out are the French Revolution. The French Revolution, 1789, 1799, basically was an atheistic revolution. It was promising a utopia, and it's a rebellion against religion, and the Catholic churches were destroyed, the Catholic priests were killed, and so this is seen as a judgment on the papacy, and it took place in the form of the French Revolution. Remember, historicists see all these events as kind of a coded reference to history. So they see the French Revolution in this. Futurists, if you think this is happening in a seven-year period, see, we're just about at the end of the tribulation and that these might be nuclear fallout from the nuclear war that many futurists think these are symbolic of. People break out in sores because this world war, this worldwide thermonuclear war is spread from the Middle East to all the world, and so we're near the end of the tribulation. And of course, uh, symbolic point of view sees this as the Exodus story playing itself out. It's talking about God's ultimate judgment of evil, whether that's today, tomorrow, or at some seven-year period in the future. It's a recurring truth about what's gonna happen with God. Let's go on. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues. Now, that's interesting. All through this story, you've seen the dragon pulling the strings, or at least he seems to be. The scripture is always careful to say he was allowed to oppress God's people. He was given authority over the earth. But now people realize this is not the Antichrist. This is not the false prophet. They're liars. There really is a God, and he is in control of this. They said they cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. They refused to turn around. This is the tragedy, not that God isn't willing to forgive, it's that we love the darkness more than the light. It is truly the gospel story playing itself out. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and the water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And so you begin to see the preparation for the great and final battle. And so the river Euphrates dries up. So now you can move people quickly into the Middle East for this final huge confrontation. So let's talk about this for a second. The sun being darkened means the dark times for the papacy. In fact, the French troops sacked Rome in 1798. In other words, the French Revolution happened and they went after not only the Catholic Church in France, but they sacked the city of Rome and deposed the Pope in 1798. And so historicists say the sun being darkened out, the sun being a representative of a ruler, the Pope in their view, has been darkened. In other words, the papacy has been conquered by the very people that it was going to rule. Then the futurists would say this is a solar flare, for example. This is uh, the sores and the radiation is either a natural event that God is making happen, you know, the solar energy, or it's the result of the nuclear weapons that are being set off. So futurists divide a little bit on exactly what's happening, but they all think it's part of that. And the Antichrist government, this world government of the Antichrist, is now in turmoil as people began to realize, wait a minute, you said you were gonna make things good, and 
the world is in a bigger war, we're worse off, we have been deceived. And so the Antichrist government is in turmoil and the whole world is in turmoil. Uh, symbolic point of view understands this as almost like hell on earth. It's like the Exodus playing itself out. In the Exodus, one of the plagues was darkness. And in Exodus, I believe it's around chapter 10, says that it was darkness that you could feel. You could feel the darkness. Symbolic point of view says, following the way of this world, failure to follow Christ, following any other God, ourselves, what wealth, fame, any other God leads to a kind of hell on earth, if you will. So that's what symbolic view sees is happening here. Again, futurists, this is literally happening in seven years. Others, it's symbolic of these ultimate truths that God is telling us. One of the great lessons out of this is God's love and willingness to forgive even now. The fact that they, they refuse to repent means they could repent, and yet we refuse. Jesus himself said men love darkness more than the light. And there's a truth in that, is that we tend to run to the darkness even, and, and what this book of Revelation is pointing out is this is the end of the darkness. Come out of the darkness into the light and just be cleansed in the light, repent. But you see people holding on to that here. Revelation 16, I'm just gonna read you a few verses, 13 through 16. Uh, says this, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon. I want to hit this because in our last lesson we had a question about Muhammad, and I want to tell you how historicists understand this passage. So right after what we've just read, it says this, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, Satan, out of the mouth of the beast, the Antichrist, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. There was a plague of frogs, by the way, in Exodus. Three unclean spirits, for they are demonic spirits. They perform signs. They go abroad to all the kings of the world and assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. You stop for a second, because the question was, do people think, has there, have Christians thought that perhaps Muhammad and Islam was the Antichrist? There are people that have thought that, Christians who understood Revelation that way, but historicists understand this passage as this is Muhammad and Islam rising up because in this time period of the papacy falling and the French Revolution, you see the Ottoman Empire, which are Turkish Muslims, resurgent at that time and being very powerful in the world. And so their historicists often believe these demonic spirits are Islam. Now remember what they say, that these spirits gather up the kings of the earth and get them ready for the great day of battle. Futurists, many futurists understand that Armageddon is gonna be fought between a coalition of Russian, Chinese, Arab, Muslim states against Israel and Israel's very few allies in the world. And so that's one of the reasons historicists think that Islam is part of what's playing out here. Many futurists agree with that as well. So they go out to get all the kings of the earth and they gather them at a place called Armageddon. In our next lesson, we'll talk about Armageddon uh, and we'll talk about uh, where Armageddon is supposed to happen. In fact, I'll show you where Armageddon is supposed to happen. That's right here in Oklahoma City. I oh, know, I'm just kidding but I'll show you where Armageddon is supposed to happen. So they gather all the kings of the earth. And then finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Think about what we just studied. What it basically says is, of all the things that are going on, really what's happening is Satan and his antichrist and false prophet and the demonic spirits that come from them, the deception, the lies, the coercion, are basically the powers behind what's going on. In other words, our battle really is not just against other people and that they have different ideas, that there really is a force of evil in the world behind this. Revelation makes that really clear and it emphasizes what the Apostle Paul was inspired to write in Ephesians chapter six. And I think that's important for us to remember at times is that it seems like the forces of the world are allied against us. I hate to tell you this, but it's actually worse than that. You have Satan himself aligned against us. And so it takes the power of God and his Holy Spirit to overcome. We cannot fight Satan on our own, nor do we have to fight Satan on our own. We overcome by what? Trusting our God to fight our battles for us. Let's go on. Then finally, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. We'll talk about that in a second. And out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. We've talked about this before, but what does it mean when you have uh, rumblings and thunder and earthquakes? It's the judgment of God. But listen to this one. It's kind of like the final judgment of God. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on the earth. So tremendous was this quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of a hundred pounds each fell upon men. Again, reminiscent of the Exodus plagues. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. So historicists, what's happening here? The papacy is falling. The Roman Catholic Church is going to be destroyed. Futurists, it's a literal earthquake. As we get near the final thing, perhaps it's caused by all these nuclear weapons going off. Perhaps it's caused by hydraulic fracking. No, just kidding about that part. Seriously, futurists say this is a literal earthquake and it may be that God did it or it may be that this great war has literally destroying the earth itself and the earth is literally falling apart. And of course, the symbolic point of view wants to point to something interesting here. This is worth getting whether this is your view or not. He pours it into the air. I want to remind you of an interesting little passage. Look at this. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's saying that, by the way, read Ephesians chapter 2. It's a beautiful chapter. It, it describes our condition and God's grace and our joy at being redeemed. It, it's a little picture of the gospel in Ephesians chapter 2. It says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. First of all, what's he basically saying? He said, we used to follow the ruler of this world. Maybe it was through wealth or greed or pride or whatever. All those things serve Satan's purposes because they destroy us. Sin destroys us. And that's why God 
hates sin because he loves us. But the interesting thing is Satan is called the ruler of the powers of the air. And so in Jewish mythology, uh, basically you had this, the earth, you had the heavens, and in between you had what's called the air, A-E-R in Greek, the air. And that was the province of spirits. And so Satan is the ruler of the power of the air. And it's just interesting that the seventh bowl is poured out into the air. It's poured out onto Satan's realm, on Satan himself. This is God judging all the evil and particularly the evil that's behind the evil in the world. He's judging Satan himself. Well, let me summarize just a moment here as we think about what we've seen. We've seen the seven bowls of wrath being poured out. This is the final set of seven judgments of God. Historicists understand this as the great papacy being defeated. In other words, God's judgment on this false gospel of the papacy. This is Luther and Calvin and Wesley and some people today hold that view of the historicist view. They'd say this is a code for what has happened in history. Futurists would say, no, these, these are events that are happening. In fact, chapter 4 to 19 is, is linear. In other words, one chapter happens right after another, and we've seen worse and worse calamities coming from either God miraculously doing things or most futurists, I think, probably believe that the forces of evil have come together into a, a war. You read the newspaper today and you realize, wow, that's not at all un. Uh, impossible. I mean, you could see this event come together with the forces in this world that seem to be allied against Israel and, by extension, the West. And that is, at the moment, Russia and Iran and North Korea and China behind the scenes and some of the Muslim countries in that area as well. And so they begin to see this shaping up. And so futurists tend to look at chapters 4 through 19 might not be very far off. Symbolic view says we're going to be faithful no matter what because, frankly, these things have happened. Maybe it will happen on a great scale in the future, but actually it's happening now. And in fact, I'd say it's happening on a personal level. The gospel is playing itself out in our lives. God comes to each one of us in our darkness, in our chasing after the gods of the air, living lives of self-absorption, and he calls us into the light. And when he does, he doesn't promise us that Everything will work out right. He says, trust me, and I will take you through, whether it's the tribulation at the end of times or it's the tribulations with a little t that happen to us now, the grief, the loss of our job, the cancer diagnosis, the things that, that trial us at this time. God says, your faith, I will carry you through if you will trust me. And so Depending on whatever view you have, the basic truth is there is that God is trustworthy, that God is the power that is shaping all of history, and that he will preserve us and lead us home. It is the gospel in a nutshell. It is the wrath of God being poured out on those who will not turn and turn to Jesus Christ and accept that offer of forgiveness. Well, as you can tell, the world is on the move. And the kings of the earth are gathering. And so in our next lesson, we will have the great battle of Armageddon. So you have one more week of peace next time, Armageddon.